1: this episode of the B side, we're joined by a man who's had almost a 20-year relationship and association with the football club to go back to the start and see how he got involved in the field that he's been working in for so long we explore the relationships he's had with multiple Everton managers and also players along the way as well as what he's up to now since leaving the club and his plans for the future so sit back relax While we go behind the signs with Danny Donaghy. Welcome to episode nine of the CNC B-Side, brought to you in association with Sport Social, the UK's only dedicated sports podcast network, and also Fanatics, Liked it to be back so quickly after our, our last episode when we we touched on the um, the fantasy Premier League with our with our last guest and it's uh, it's good to be back just such, such a short space of time and joining myself, Peter and Lee today is a is a man who'll be well known to to all Evertonians I'm sure uh, a long-standing relationship with the club um, waited the club up until late late last year as well uh, I I'd, had I'd links to his through his dad. But also he's um, entrepreneur and also now a, a fellow podcaster. So welcome to the show, Danny Donickey. Danny, how are you, mate?
2: Thanks, Michael. Yeah, I'm really well. Thank you. It's uh, unusual to be called an entrepreneur because uh, I'm, a, I'm a newly um, newly named entrepreneur. I would say.
1: Well, we have to give you all your all your relevant titles. You know, give you the give you the big build up. <laughs> uh, I think it's. I think it's important. But as, as I mentioned there, I mentioned obviously now a, a fellow podcaster. Uh, you, you've you've recently just launched a uh, launched your own your own podcast. I had a little listen myself to the day, so the, the Tony Bellu episode whilst I was I was in the gym. What, what's what's the podcast all about for for, for our listeners? who might want to have a have a little listen.
2: Well, it's called Lobster Brain, and we're speaking to people who have been really successful in different walks of life, and basically you know a lot of people have the impression that once you're successful you know if you win a world championship or whatever then you're happy and it's not the case at all so we're trying to kind of demystify that myth that success it equals happiness and it's been great so far we've uh, spoken to tony bellew as you know uh, mo gaudat we're speaking to david moyes next week phil neville um jessica ennis and uh, yeah, and and a few experts as well. We spoke to Dr. Lisa Miller, who is a professor of psychology at Columbia University, and she was brilliant as well. So it's a a real joy to be able to speak to these people, and I'm learning so much from them.
0: Great name, Ooh, by the way. I love the
2: name. Thanks. Yeah, we thought it was quite catchy. There's a yeah. little bit of a a connection with um, Jordan Peterson, which like he's got quite yeah. controversial views. So we're trying to downplay that connection a little bit, but it seems to be going well. The name.
1: I, think, I mean there's a great great range of, of guests there for, for people. Obviously there's a good good link for Everton fans as well, obviously with well Tony Bell, you David Moyes, Phil Neville, of course. But I think it's something that one thing since since I've been doing this, I've been trying to broaden my horizons in terms of listening to podcasts full stop really because I was never ever a podcast listener. But I think anyone, as I say, I've had a listener already should should have a have a tune in, that's for sure, to to listen to the to these people who you may not see themselves as I know Tony Bell. You were saying on, on his podcast, he doesn't see himself as as anything special, does he? Which is you which think is mm-hmm. quite an anonymity you can take on things. But for those who want to, I want to have a listen. Of course, we, we'll we'll put the link the link into um, into the tweets we put out of, across social media when this episode comes out. That's for sure. Great. Um, and but 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 if we can, Danny, let's 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 jump back to to the start if if we can, and and how how your your journey. Began in the field that obviously you you specialise in. Now, I've done a little done a little bit of research. Um, I thought it wise wise to do well so. Done. Well I think I think we actually there was there was so much so much to go through. But I think having a little read, looking at what I, what I saw. Um, the links tend to go back to because it wasn't it your dad. Obviously Willie Donaghy, known to to Evertonians of course. He, he in the in the seventies, uh, was very much into his sort of mindfulness and, and that side of things. And he, and you got got yourself involved at a very young age.
2: Yeah, I used to when like, probably uh, as far as I can remember back, probably when I was like four or five, and my sister's a couple of years younger; so She was like two or three. He'd get us to sit down and um, it's kind of like a body scan exercise that's quite well known now, but we, we were like little kids and he's get us sit, sitting there saying, right, feel your hands, uh, feel your feet on the floor and all this kind of stuff. And me and my sister were just cracking up laughing, just thinking, what, who is this guy? Who is this weirdo? But he, um, He used to, like that was in the 70s, he used to read the Bhagavad Gita on the team bus when all the other players were drunk and playing poker and things like that. So I think he was quite unusual. And obviously that had a big impact on me. And even, you know, I think as soon as I was born, he was meditating twice a day, uh, morning and night for at least half an hour each time. So that had a big impact. And I think his own story was that he came from like a really rough place called the Gorbals in Glasgow. And I guess he was kind of questioning who he was. So he'd gone from there to like this famous footballer and he was questioning, you know, the way people treated him before and treated him after. So he was, he was seeking more meaning for who he is and, and what his life about really. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's a, you, you don't know well, you would say. It was certainly before, before
1: it's time. It was, it was a, an ultra modern technique, something that, that wasn't particularly practiced by by many people at all. So, your dad was almost, uh, what I would say, would be an innovator, wouldn't he? You know, to, to, to do that kind of thing at that kind of era. Like you say, players on the bus, on, on the way home, having a few drinks, playing cards, things like that. But your dad's used to do something totally different, which I'm sure was was to the benefit of his of his career.
2: Yeah, I think so. And he was like, you know, he was always a big one for how can I get better? and there'd be there'd be many people who came to stay at our house it like there's the weird and wonderful came to stay at our house there was a guy called Lenny Heppel and he was a famous movement expert and he used to work with a lot of the top tennis players but he'd come and stay at our house for two weeks at a time and he'd work with my dad he'd work with me when I was a kid and then he'd go in and work with the teams that my dad was coaching at as well an example of what he would do so because he worked in tennis he would put tennis balls around our house and what I had to do so like I was probably about 12 at the time what I had to do every time I saw a tennis ball I had to like move quickly like for a few yards and it was it was training me to get my mind and my body you know quicker and and like you know that's just one example there was there was many people who came to stay and then when when my dad became a coach he would invite players to stay at the house as well and I can remember there was, a, there was a goalkeeper called Andy Rhodes. He's quite a big guy. And I think he was struggling with his weight at the time. So he had to stay at our house for two weeks. And I had bunk beds. So I was sleeping on the bottom bunk and there was this big goalkeeper <laughs> sleeping above me. I was terrified he was going to fall through. Um, but yeah, I was just brought up in this environment where it was all about performance and how can you be better. Um, yeah, and it had a big impact on me.
0: Besides that, like, Brailsford's a big fan of marginal gains, isn't he? And he's done exceptionally well with the British cycling team. And um, I think any sport you play, once you reach a certain level of, you know, of eliteness, if you want to call it that, it's it's the small percentages, then, isn't it? How do I get a little bit better every day? I think that's kind of not just a motto for sport, but a motto for life as well, really, isn't it?
2: Yeah, definitely. And I think it's not only it's not only about how how you get better. It's also about how you deal with the immense pressure and stress that you're under. And I think people understand that a bit better now. But when my dad was playing in the 70s and 80s, they had no idea. You know, you just had to get on with it. Um, So I think it was it was his way of finding ways of helping himself and the players he worked with cope with the pressure uh, in a bit better as well yeah it's it's very, really, very really insistent insistent field interesting insistent sake. obviously Peter's
1: is, is uh, this is is kind of uh, neck of the woods isn't it what what are your thoughts on this because obviously this is obviously a real interest to to yourself is that these kind of things that Danny's discussions these are the kind of things that you've heard about maybe but when uh, obviously within your work
3: Well, like you're saying Mike, in terms of mindfulness that there's been a huge push probably in, in the West in terms of the, the UK and the USA around mindfulness that probably started to come in, in in the early 2000s. So to hear of somebody engaged in regular mindfulness practice, but a, a good potentially 20 years before that at least mm-hmm. um, it certainly would be unheard of. I mean, you, you could talk to people in the street at the moment about mindfulness and you probably imagine the vast majority of people will have heard the term, but I'd be very, very surprised if, um, if anybody 20 years ago would would know what it would refer to um, you know a particular type of of paying attention or that it might be linked to meditation Um, whereas the word meditation was known mindfulness was um yeah I suppose quite a, an unheard of concept around then.
2: yeah I think even you know the word meditation was known but it was it was seen as like a very weird thing and the thing that only kind of monks and all that did but the but coming back to footballers, I think, you know, it's it's more understood now that they're under big pressure, and um, it's more accepted. But I still think there's a big stigma around mental health and mental wellness for footballers, because it's really difficult for you. You know, I've worked with many players who've not felt strong enough, or it, it, the culture hasn't been open enough for them to speak out. And it's, it's kind of obvious why that is, but for example, if you know if somebody speaks about their mental health problems, then they might not get picked, they might not get a, a new contract, they might not get a new club, and it's still hugely stigmatized, and I think it's going to be really difficult to change and it will have to change at a systemic level. Um, yeah, so I think you know in terms of elite athletes, it's still really difficult.
0: this is something we don't appreciate I think as 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 football fans which obviously all of us are in in in, in, in some respect you talk about the pressure they're under we, we almost view them as being almost like superhuman beings in a way we put them on a pedestal don't we like you know these are these are incredible human beings are performing you know sport we all love but at the end of the day they're just like all of us you know they're still going to have the same issues aren't they they're still going to have the same you know potential problems in life and things like that i mean you know look the big thing that's thrown at them is that they earn, you know, um, a load of money. Certainly, a lot more money than when your dad was playing. Yeah. You know what I mean? But that that doesn't necessarily equate to them being, you know, well, you earn this, so you should be happy. Well, I think most of us know that money doesn't necessarily always bring happiness. So, I think I think a lot of us are guilty. Not I'm not saying us in particular. I think a lot of fans are guilty of that. Certainly, you see it when you go to the game when you see a lot of projected anger onto the pitch. Mm-hmm. Uh, certainly, in Everton in recent years, it's not been the happiest. <laughs> But have you seen that, Danny? I mean, like obviously you see certain players that obviously quite resilient to that, and you can you can clearly see see other players are more affected by it.
2: Yeah, I think um, like it's really difficult for every player, and you know some players do seem more resilient resilient, and they are more resilient, but they all have their issues. And I'm lucky that I get to see behind the behind the surface, you know, of a lot of them, and they're obviously all human beings and they suffer with the same frailties that we all do. And what you say about projections, so if there's millions of people projecting something onto them, I think it's even more difficult to have a balanced and and sensible life where you don't get carried away with those projections. And we spoke to Rodney Rodney Marsh last week on our podcast and he was speaking about, he thinks that to become an elite footballer you have to have this really hard shell. And, you know, Tony Bell, you spoke about there was, he's Anthony away from the boxing ring and he's Tony in the boxing ring. So it's a similar kind of theme. And I think, yeah, a, a lot of players have this hard shell, but it can be quite uh, fragile. So they get to a certain level and then there's the pressure and it just cracks, cracks them in certain ways. And and another theme that I've noticed with a lot of footballers is is that they're driven really hard by their dads. And that creates this hardness and this hard shell. But again, it's fragile and it only gets you so far. And you have to really understand yourself on a deeper level to get through that. And I've seen many players suffer when they get to a level because that part of themselves just breaks down. And it, it, like it's really hard if you're if you're a fan and you see these players and you project onto them that they they're superhumans. It's really hard to understand that they have these real difficult problems, but it's it's a reality. It's a fact.
1: Yeah, like like Lisa, you know, we 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 do view our, our football and heroes and footballers in general as, as sort of as superheroes, maybe as as a little bit um, immune criticism which is certainly not you know we I mean a, a, an example of one of our players you've come out recently Dominic Albert Lewin was was fairly vocal a few months ago how, how he'd struggled now he's obviously suffered with, with injury uh for the first time in his career really a really long-standing period of time where he was he's he's been out um and obviously comes back and, and he broke down again and he you know so for him personally to come out like you said you know for players to actually come forward and, and admit they have they have uh, have had an issue with their mental health and they've struggled in some capacity, Um it can almost be viewed as as a sign of weakness still in the modern society in the game. Like yeah. you say, you know the petrified that it could impact a new contract and things like that. So it's a, it's a very brave thing to do in 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 the footballing world, that's for sure. But you know, obviously in in the work that that you do, the when you work at football clubs. The, have you practiced a lot of this mindfulness with players the the can you pick up on players who maybe need it more than others? Should we say?
2: Yeah, obviously, like when you know whenever I've done work, I, I work in different ways with players, and I've never kind of forced anyone to do anything. So they kind of come to you naturally when they need help. But um my my sense is that all players need help at certain points of of their lives, and all people need help at certain points of their lives. So, I think if you're there for them, um, then they'll come to you at different points. You know, I think about, for example, Tony Hibbert. He's like a very um, kind of straight, hard guy who wouldn't, he, he would take the mickey out of me for being interested in meditation and psychology and stuff like that. But there were certain points in his career where he would come to me, you know, maybe only once or twice. And then there's other players who w- were more interested and more keen to develop and, and need more support who would, who would spend more time with me as well. So I think it's just a case of being there and, and offering that space for them. Because there's not, there's not many spaces in football clubs where they have the, the opportunity to speak openly with someone in, in a safe environment. It's not really like that.
0: Yeah, I can I can totally understand that. I mean, I I, I was looking on your, your site the other day, Danny. I know we, we we've spoken in the past as well. I think certain players are obviously more open to it as well, aren't they? You know what I mean? And you, you, when I think of that, players that come to mind, I think people like Leighton Leighton Baines, for example. You've, you know, Leighton. I can imagine is a very open guy. He's a pretty calm guy, and he'd he never seem sort of flustered. That's the way he played as well, to be honest. And he was an exceptional footballer. Let let's have that that right as well. But I know you've done a quite a lot of work with Layton. You've done work with the likes so of you mentioned Phil Neville before off off air. Um, you know he's someone I've described as being very much open to anything like that. And then also like you've, on your site you've worked with John Stones as well. I mean I'm assuming that was from your time at Everton as well, was it?
2: Yeah, I worked with Stonesy. I, I, I've not worked with him recently, but I worked with him when he was at City for a while after yeah. So after you yeah. left Everton, yeah. Um, but yeah when so when Stonesy came to Everton when he first got in the team, he had a bad ankle injury. So he went through a lot emotionally then, as all players do, and I helped him through that period. And then we got close and, and stayed together. And yeah, I think he's done amazingly well, John, because he, you know, it wasn't easy going to City and there was a lot of challenges. And I think he came through that really well and has grown and matured as a man.
0: Yeah, I totally agree. That's that famous. I mean, I don't know whether you were at Everton at the time, I'm assuming you were, when he was at Everton, that famous. Uh, moment wasn't it where he was obviously he's a cultured footballer cultured centre back I think we'd all say yeah. that and he's gone on to have a fantastic career I, I, you know we all rated him here and uh, and I'm really happy for him because I think he's a great guy as well but um, that famous scene where he, he tried to pass it out the back then you know Everton fans are normally like when they're a bit nervous <laughs> playing out from the back and he fa- I think it was it was it the Gladys Mike or was it the Park End I think it was the Park End wasn't it it? was it it was the Park End i pretty sure was against yeah.
1: Spain so I was sitting in the Park End at the time when he when he did it and he yeah and to,
0: he was just turned around didn't he It's like, relax, relax, (laughs) we know what we're doing. Um, Do you remember that moment, Danny? Do you
2: remember that? Yeah, Yeah, I do. It makes me think as well about, you know, what you're saying about there being a lot of bad times at Everton.
0: Mm. And
2: a lot of the players, the young players who come through at Everton, I think they get harder time from the fans than the ones who we buy. Mm. And that's really tough because, you know, like Ozzy, Hibbo, and then more recently Tom Davis and players like that, they really love Everton as much as any fan, or or more, and it, you know it's their dream to play for Everton. And I know it happens at most clubs, and it's kind of natural that you take for granted what what you've got. But yeah, I think that that's really difficult for those players. It has been.
1: I think that that's always been the case with 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 younger players. You mentioned a few there. Now you look at Anthony Gordon now as as a, as another example of that. You burst onto the scene we discussed this ourselves at length. On various podcasts, and he burst onto the scene last year. And, and let's get it right—he he carried a lot of pressure himself, personally, because obviously, as, a, as an Everton fan, as a local lad, and at times he, he dragged us through, and, and was one of the main reasons why why we survived. That's that's the, mm. the honest truth. And, and I think obviously when we see a little bit of a downturn in his form, when he struggled a little bit, obviously there was there was transfer speculation in the summer as well. Is he going glad? these things are going are to really take, take the toll on, on any player, but somebody, a local lad, like we've said, Ross Barkley, similar, obviously we had Wayne Rooney, he was probably the, he broke the mould really out of all the younger players, but Tom Davis, all these, all these young lads, I think we, we put all our, our hopes and dreams and, and our pressures on them as local players, and and that's, that's probably one of the main reasons as, as, as to why some of them really struggle, because of the um unweighted expectations is what I'd say from us as fans.
2: Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I think you're right. And the one thing I would say about why we survived last year was that I felt like, you know, Anthony was brilliant. He did really well. But for me, the reason that Everton survived last year was the fans. And mm. just to see those scenes outside Goodison and, you know, after the games and I get goosebumps speaking about it now. It was a real special thing. And it, it undoubtedly for me it was the fans that that saved Everton last season and it was brilliant.
0: Yeah, I mean, I mean, one, one of the things that sticks, I mean, the fans were incredible. I mean, we go into some of the games beforehand, greeting the buses, what that must mean like a play, the euphoria that you get from that, the extra 10% that it must give you when you're running on the pitch. I mean, those those scenes at Palace, I think none of us will ever forget that. I mean, it was absolutely incredible. I mean, only Everton would do it by going 2 0 down as well. It was like Wimbledon all over again. Um, <laughs> but, uh, but no, I mean, I know you've worked with obviously numerous managers. When we've spoken in the past, I think you were very much, uh, obviously you've worked with different styles of managers as well. Um, you were a big fan of, um, of Carlo, would not you? Carlo Ancelotti when he came into the club. Um, can you tell us a bit more about your relationship with Carlo and what, what that was like?
2: Yeah, he was great. When uh, I'll never forget the first game, when, when we first met him, I think was who was it against it was at home I think maybe Arsenal yeah I think we drew yeah, with Arsenal, it, at home. Yeah. Arsenal yeah, yeah 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 and duncan was manager duncan was brilliant like those times were brilliant with duncan but carlo came into the dressing room and you could just sense this awe that everyone had seen him and he he just walked in he had this class about him he was really kind and and generous with everyone and that like everyone was kind of intrigued and interested in him because of his pedigree obviously and then quite early on like the the mood we hadn't done well obviously so the mood's always a bit low and then duncan came in and everyone was lifted it was brilliant everyone felt like united again and together and then carlo came in and i remember one of the first mornings where he was there we'd have a meeting every morning and i was just walking through finch farm and just walking up the stairs and this guy Approached me and he goes like buongiorno Danny, and it was Carlo, and that was how he greeted me every morning. And you know, to go from like feeling really low and miserable to that, and this is one of the most famous managers in the world, it was brilliant. And then in those meetings, he was just hilarious. He's just a funny guy. He'd come over. He's very tactile, and he was always warm and always wanted to know how you are as a person, and. Yeah, he was brilliant, brilliant. Uh, yeah, I still speak I've, I've...
0: to him. Oh, did, yeah. But didn't you go? You, didn't he invite you over to Madrid as well to spend some time with him there?
2: Yeah. Yeah. So when um, when I left Everton, he um, was one of the first calls I got, and he said, "Danny, don't worry. Um, you know, we're all here for you, and come over to Madrid and spend as long as you want with us." So I went over, and he took me in the training ground. I, I met all the players. He took me in the team meetings and everything. He was just amazing and there's yeah. no need for him to do that he was amazing
0: yeah he's a classy guy isn't he he's a very classy guy yeah, yeah. And, you know he, he always liked to, i've read his book recently and that's a brilliant read as well for anyone that's not read carlo's book um incredible read as well i mean people forget he was a top top player he sort of broke the mold in the fact that you know uh, along with only a handful of people that very few top players go on to be top managers but a lot of it comes down to their personality isn't it and he he was the type of guy that um always exuded calmness you know what i mean and 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 whenever he would never get too high or too low wouldn't he he almost seemed to be that sort of perfect blend and as a man manager from the outside looking in he just looked like you know he's one of the best has ever been as a man manager isn't
2: he yeah he's just like he's just as you say he's just calm and got a really uh, nice way about him he'd come into the treatment room every day telling stories to the players about and zaggy and all these other players and evan would just laugh he's just just funny but calm you know under pressure and he he told me about when when he was a boy i think he was like 15 or 16 he loved football uh, but he was really close to his family and and at that age he had to move uh, i think it was like three or four hours away from his home and live in a monastery and that was the only the only way that he could become a professional footballer. And he said that he found it really difficult. Um, But that kind of, you know, I think that helped him develop this hardness that you need to be a footballer. And then obviously as a manager, it's it's even harder. You know, I think being a football manager is one of the hardest jobs. It's like, you know, if if any leader in any organization is a difficult enough job, but to be like under that scrutiny every, every day... I think about Southgate now. You know, if he loses his next game, he's going to be scapegoated. If he wins it, he'll be the hero temporarily. And it's almost an impossible task now.
1: Yeah, the, 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 the pressures obviously on managers nowadays are probably tenfold, twentyfold compared to what they were even maybe 15, 15 years ago. And, you know, that, that, must, that must sort of impact on, on yourself as well, personally, because obviously when you're... Working with players, especially key players who who are injured, are you getting a knock on the door to sort of say, well, obviously we're we're at the up am sure, obviously you having daily meetings and things like that, but are you getting? Do you feel that pressure from managers because obviously it's a results business and they want the best players back?
2: Yeah, I think you know generally I'd I'd put that pressure on myself, and the players the players want to get back quickly as well, so that there's pressure from the player, there's play, pressure from the manager. And then you've got the board as well, you know, so that they put pressure on you and the sporting director. But for me, the the key, the key component is if the manager cares about the player. Because if he doesn't, then the there's a lot of pressure put on the medical lead um to get them back. Yeah, and so so like for example with David Moyes, like he's tough, he's tough and he put pressure on you a lot but it, it was always for the best um, outcome for the player because he knew that that is ultimately the best outcome for the team. So I never, I never ever felt that as pressure. But when you get a manager who doesn't care for the person like that, then that feels like pressure to me because ethically it doesn't meet with my ethics. So you feel like you're kind of, you know, you can't care for the player, which is the role really of the medical person. Yeah,
1: and, and and it must it must be obviously when when clubs change managers regularly, that must be a really really you know moving moving situation. I mean, with, with Everton, obviously when when you first went there, two thousand and one, um, not long not long after, really David Moyes comes in and stays there for a long period of time. So you've got that stability, you've got that relationship, you know how every, how, how each other works. But then sort of since since that time, um there's been quite a few managers through the door. I know yeah. obviously Roberto Martinez, I think you were there was a the season uh before you yeah. before he moved on. Um I've, I've got to ask and I'll answer the question if, if you can. Mm-hmm. Roberto Martinez, did they have, have a background in physiotherapy? Did they have some kind of degree? Did yeah. That, <laughs> was that it? was that an issue, so to speak?
2: Uh, no, nah, it wasn't because he he had a degree in physio. Um, he did that at university. That was a long time before, and then he never actually practiced as a physio. So I don't think it changed anything. And most managers think they know everything about everything anyway. So it doesn't it doesn't change anything. <laughs> I can imagine. I can just imagine
1: because obviously I think I think at the time you always hear about stories that, that that come out, and obviously I think people put two and two together and look at that and think, well, he he must have been there. Um, sticking his oar in and, and obviously going above, above sorts of other people's heads, you know, when making his own mind up on things. But obviously you, you, you've worked, as you say, you had the stability of David Moyes, a bit of time with Roberto, a bit of time with Aston Villa as well, I think in between yeah. gap with Steve Bruce. What, what, what was that like? Obviously, cause you, you had such a long period of time at Everton. What was it like then moving to, to another club?
2: it was great actually because when i when i left everton it wasn't i wasn't enjoying it at that time and going to aston villa uh, steve ram was the director of football so i knew him from everton and he he had hunted me to go there and then i met steve bruce and he's a brilliant guy he's like you know a really great guy and cares for the players and at the time they're in the championship so they were really trying to get back to the premier league as quickly as they could so i really enjoyed a new environment, and an environment where I felt like I was uh, supported and wanted really. So, it, it, and it, it was a good experience to go somewhere different because I've been at Everton for so long, like you said. Who, 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 obviously, like you say, it was it was a good move
1: for yourself, Percy, at that time, because you, you you weren't you weren't enjoying things at at the club or enjoying your work. So it was good to get that 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 escape. Who then pulled you back into to Everton? Was it was it when Marco Silva uh, was got the job?
2: Yeah, it was. But I think um, there were I th- there were still a few players left at that point who I'd worked with, obviously like Jags and Bainesy, and probably a couple of others. And I think they'd gone through a few changes, and it was probably other people in the club because Marco Silva didn't know me, obviously. So I think it was people who I'd worked with before at the club that invited me back. And that was, um, that was a crazy story because they – so they asked me to go back. And so I spoke to Roundy at Villa, and he said, well, we really want you to stay at Villa. Will you go to Portugal and meet the manager, Steve Bruce, and then, you know, have a chat with him? And if you still want to go to Everton, I understand no problem. You can go. So I get on the flight to Portugal. Two-hour flight. I get off the plane. Roundy phones me. He says, I've just been sacked because they were, <laughs> the owner was going <laughs> – um, crazy at the time. I've just been sacked. Get on the next plane back to England and get yourself to Everton as fast as you can. So that <laughs> wow. was how that happened.
0: That's the volatility volatility of modern football right there, isn't it? It's absolutely exactly. crazy. Absolutely exactly, crazy. Yeah, yeah it's well, got worse and worse. Oh, I was about to say, we've had this chat on the podcast quite a few times, you know, in terms of like, you know, sacking managers consistently after you just had a bad period of games you know, in the long term, it's just not fruitful for the club. I mean, I know Chelsea can maybe buck the trend a little bit there, but a lot of that comes down to the fact they can throw money at top world-class players. And obviously, they've built a system behind the scenes now and they do that as well. But I just think it's one of my biggest bugbears in football nowadays is that, you know, time is everything. You know, managers need time to build squads. You, otherwise, you end up in a situation like Everton have in the last few years where you end up with a Frankenstein squad from different managers, different styles of play, you know, you, you know, you're trying to build a culture, if you like. You're trying to build a culture within a club. It's almost impossible if people... It's the revolving door of managers, not just managers as well, their coaching staff, everybody else that goes with them. And I just think... I wish, I wish teams... and you know, There are certain teams in the league that obviously stand up to that. But I, I just wish now that we, you know, us, for example, with Lampard, whether we think he's a good coach or not, just give the guy time. You know, one of the things I would say, Lampard's done incredibly well since he's come in, is that he's tried to rebuild that connection with the fans again, following that, obviously, horrendous period under Benitez, which is, I think was the worst I've ever seen it. And that's a big part of a coach as well, not just managing the team, but also trying to build the unity with the fan base to fall in love with the team again, isn't it?
2: Yeah, I think I think you're right. I think he's done a brilliant job of that. And I think that obviously helped with getting the fans to have the impact that they had last season. But I think in terms of what you're saying about giving a, a coach longer, I think it's deeper than that. You need to have an actual philosophy and culture at your club and then pick a a coach who's going to fit in with that and then give the coach time. So you have to have like a really strong recruitment process for the coach that you're going to hire and he has to fit in with your identity as a club. And Mm. a lot of clubs don't have that. And you speak about um, other clubs. I think there's some clubs like Brighton, Uh, Brentford who've done incredible jobs of that and like I think they're a real template for other clubs and I think there's a lot to learn from them.
0: Totally agree with that I totally agree and then they're they're punching above the weight because of what they've created in terms of a culture as a club aren't they because they don't have nowhere near the spending power of even even an Everton you know what I mean and obviously we're not the biggest spenders Um, but obviously I, I touched on obviously the time there with um, with with Rafa, um, you went. We've gone from Carlo, who is you know, as you said the warmest guy, the nicest <laughs> guy. Everybody everybody loves him. You know, <laughs> you can imagine him walking into Finch Farm, like you said, greeting everybody. You know, with, with probably no doubt a kiss on both cheeks and things of like that as well. But then you then go from that to the, the complete almost opposite with 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 Benitez. I mean, how how was that? I mean, that must have been really difficult, not just for. You know the players and everything else, but also for you guys, as obviously work who worked as staff at the club.
2: Yeah, uh, to be fair to him, I wouldn't say that he's not a warm person. I think you know, in terms of that, he's not the opposite of Carlo. Um, oh, okay. He's a- he's actually quite friendly and warm. You know, if you met him, he, he's he's fine like that. Um, <clears throat> yeah, I just think it goes back to, I think you know, uh, from my my perspective um, as an employee, you have to kind of fit your ethics with the leader's ethics. And if, if they don't fit, then it's not going to work for me. Um, and I think it was very clear quite early on that there were differences in the way we saw the world. And, um, yeah, I guess, you know, at my, at my time, you know, I've lived, I've lived in football a long time and, and you can tell when it's not going to work out and it, it just didn't work out. Yeah.
1: Danny, do you think that at the time, I don't want to obviously dwell on Benitez because your career has been vast at Everton, and it's you know it's been a fantastic career, of course, um, at the club. But do you think that the mood from the fans at the time seeped into Finch Farm? Because obviously, as a fan base, I mean, you would have seen what what had gone on. You know, obviously, a lot of things I didn't agree with in terms of the the bed sheets and the writing, the, you know, writing on the walls at Goodison Park and things mm-hmm. like that. Um, but does, does that get into the, the atmosphere within the training ground, within, within the players' heads and, and impact things? Because, I mean, many people would see him as sort of almost on a hide-and-so-nothing when he, when he first came in because of that, that initial reaction.
2: Yeah, I, I, think he was, I think he had no chance of being successful. But it's not like, you know, it's not like consciously the players are thinking, oh, he's from Liverpool or the fans don't like him or anything like that. But unconsciously, there's things that are, that are happening that you can't deny. Um, and my own view was that, you know, the club had not been successful for quite a while and they try different types of managers and, and all of that. And, and my own view was that for whatever reason, they decided they wanted to bring someone in who was going to be like a bomb and disrupt everything because it wasn't, it wasn't being successful. So let's try something new. And that, that was my sense of what was going on. And yeah, and I think because of the, the high pressure that he was under coming in, he knew that he he needed to be successful very quickly, or it would just fail, which it did. And I think because of that, that probably made him be a lot more strong and aggressive in the ways that he, you know, was managing, which which made it worse, really.
0: Yeah, and it was, there's also the thing with Marcel Brand, isn't it? I know you work with Marcel, like your time your time there, and you know, he came in obviously as the director of football with pedigree. With pedigree from his time in Europe as well, he's obviously very well connected, wasn't he, across Europe as well in terms of uh, his role. And we've talked about Marcel on the podcast before, and the fact that again, from the outside looking in, it just felt like he was never given the opportunity to almost do his job. Really, you know, giving the keys to the car, if you like. I think you know, for someone as well, you know, what he, you know, what he's done at PSV, what he's done at other clubs. I think that was a big frustration for us as fans as well, and the fact if you're going to bring someone like Marcel in. Let him do his job. Do you know what I mean. Let him bring the coaches yeah. in. Let him identify the players, mm-hmm. like you said. Build a philo- you know a philosophy. And I don't think he yeah. was ever given that, was he?
2: No, I, I definitely agree with that. And I think you know I worked with him for a couple of years, probably. And I've got huge respect for him. I think he's really good sporting director. He's got incredible knowledge of football. He was a he was a top footballer himself. Eighteen years. Then he worked in business for ten years. So his pedigree is first class. Mm-hmm. But if you've not got the authority and the the ways of creating change and culture then it's an impossible task isn't it yeah 100 totally agree even when you know even when carlo like i think i i was impressed a lot by marcel the way he got on with all different managers and probably managers that he didn't choose himself he, he was really professional and did a great job of that but even when carlo came in i think you know carlo's um Recruitment policy was very different to Marcel's, and obviously Carlo, because because he's such a big name and big manager, then they let him do what, whatever he wanted to do, which didn't fit with Marcel's. So, you know, what is the point in having a sporting director if that's the case?
0: Yeah, I mean, Carlo was looking to bring in to have an instant impact, wasn't he? The likes of yeah. obviously H- James and, and 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 Alan and P- and people like that. Um, I mean, you will have worked with some of these, obviously, players that that he brought in. And and I wanted to ask a question about the likes of uh, Hamas Rodriguez coming in, obviously, like a superstar in football, Danny. And and, as Everton, obviously, um, you know, probably since I would go back as far as the Kincelskis signing, really, in terms of like, you know, an absolute world-class player coming coming through the doors at Finch Farm. What was that like when he came in? I imagine the players were all just as excited as you were as, as, as staff, weren't you?
2: Yeah, uh, to be honest, um, I because like Jamez is an unbelievable talent and he's probably one of the most talented players I've ever seen, if not the most talented. But his injury history was pretty bad when he came in. So I had my concerns when he came in about that. And we had a lot of dialogue around it with Marcel and with Carlo, you know, about whether he'd be able to sustain playing in the Premier League. Um, so in that respect, it was like it wasn't plain sailing. And then when he came in and you and you see him train and you see him play, yeah, he was he was exceptional. And and then it, it did get you excited when he was actually able to play. And it's a shame for players like Kamez who can't use their talent and play every week. Because, you know, if he if he'd have played every week at a full Goodison, it would have been electric because his talent is just out of this world He's incredible. And then, you know, there's, there's some ideas about his attitude as well. And I think it's absolute nonsense. I think his attitude is top class. The thing that stopped him performing is injuries. And it's so often the case. And it's really difficult when you've got a talent like that, that, that can't play. Um, and, you know, it, it's hard for Hammers, but, yeah, there was a lot of excitement when when you see him in the, in the training ground because he's he's just brilliant.
0: Yeah, I mean, certain players like that. I mean, you know, especially in the Premier League, the the, the narrative tends to be, oh, you have to be either you know, you have to be pacy, quick, or strong, or but he he was none of the above, really. But no. he, his his touch was just unbelievable, wasn't it? I mean, like, yeah. he, he's one of those players where. His touch is so good. He's got he's got a yard on you straight away, hasn't he? And and yeah. the ball's gone before you've even engaged him. So I mean, yeah, it must have been incredible to watch him in the flesh. I mean, it's just a shame, like you said, we never had a full Goodison to to see him. You know, and and he showed us he showed us bits, didn't he, guys? I mean, like you know, I, I think of the pass for a Charleston in the Derby, the goal at Old Trafford, the goal against Leicester with his right foot, and then, yeah. Mm-hmm. It must have been incredibly frustrating for him, like you said, uh, when you've got that much talent and you can't physically show it every week.
2: Yeah, and not only that, I think you know I met him in Qatar after after he left Everton, and he he's got great regrets about not playing in front of a full Goodison as well. And I think he, you know, even when he was in Qatar, he was desperate to go back to Everton because he like he wasn't given a chance by Rafa, and yeah, he 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 was just desperate because he missed out on playing in front of a full. Everton crowd because he loved he did love Everton.
1: Yeah, that was one of our biggest regrets. Obviously, when he when he comes in at a time when we're behind closed doors and we see obviously some of the some of the early games in that season where you know he's absolutely tearing sides apart and you're thinking, you know, oh, I can't wait to get back in, I can't wait to get back in. And the, the the times when he had a couple of thousand in and he wasn't he wasn't he wasn't there, he wasn't fit. Um, I think the only fans who got to see him, obviously the the Florida cup, he was part of, he was part of that, that squad. Yeah, and he was over there. yeah. And obviously some of the American fans were there because we couldn't travel ourselves. Uh, I was yeah. used to be over there at the time myself and couldn't travel. And then I think we had the friendly against Man uh, United at Old Trafford where there was so many thousand in there as well. So that's a massive regret of ours, not to be able to see that kind of, that kind of talent live. And like he's, you know, this, you know, the stories about him, his attitude and he doesn't want to play and when the weather gets cold we won't see him this is the kind of narrative which we see isn't it you know but people get an idea of a player that they think is right in their head and then you they run away with these stories they, they get legs especially in, in the modern day of social media and then that becomes a story of the players time in the club
2: yeah there's nothing worse than being injured as a player and i you know i experienced it myself as a young player i got a bad injury and i Because you can't train, you can't play, you're getting paid to be a footballer and you're not doing anything and you feel absolutely useless. And, you know, even if you're a Premier League footballer and you can't play, it completely challenges your identity because you're identified as being a footballer. And it's like, it's hard to describe how difficult it is. And especially when you get repeated injuries like that, Um, it's a really challenging thing.
0: I mean, you've worked, Danny, um, and it was quite well documented that um, obviously you're going to get closer to certain players more than others as well, and the nature of the role that you had as the, obviously director of medicine there at Everton. But I mean, you got very close to Yeri, didn't you? Um, and, 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 and what was Yeri like? I mean, he, he comes across as such a character. Uh, <laughs> I mean, is he is he exactly like that when you work with him? I mean, look, you're smiling yeah. now just by, just by thinking about him. <laughs> Is that what yeah, like? he's, incredible
2: yeah yeah he's unbelievable he's like he's the he's the person out of anyone i've ever met that lights up a room more than anyone wherever he goes he just lights up you know he's he's so friendly so happy so warm and he's just hilarious when he first came he could hardly speak a word of english but he was still hilarious and he tried so hard he was he was injured um when he when he came so i spent that time with him and helped him a bit with the english but he was, even without the English, he was just like the warmest, happiest, funniest guy I've ever met in my life. And, yeah, I think he's a great example because I think when Yari first came into the Premier League, he struggled a little bit. And then the season with Carlo, I felt like he was brilliant. And even on the pitch, his personality and his presence galvanised the team and obviously Yeri's had like a really difficult time with injuries and yeah I think he's a great example of what I was saying about that being tough.
1: He's another player isn't he you know I mean he was as you say that season with with Carlo he was terrific and like you say early struggles adjusting to the pace of the Premier League is always going to be difficult injury issues in that first that first season but that, that that second season he was, he was for me, and I, I still say, I still say now, I think he's, he's our best centre half on paper. I think if he, yeah. if he's a fully fit, yeah, you mean it. Yeah, he's our, he's our most competent centre half. He, even now, with with the new lads who've come in, in Sarkowski and Cody, I think yeah, I meaning think so. on his day is just yeah. really, really well. And It's such a shame that we just, we just can't see him for, you know, for, for, for more minutes and 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 be be fit for a prolonged period of time. It must be frustrating for him especially.
2: Yeah, definitely. It's like, it's really difficult. And I think, you know, yeri's such a powerful guy in the, you know, in the gym, he can lift way more than anyone else. He's naturally this powerful guy. And I, I, over the years, I've seen a lot of players like that. And it seems like their is their just so powerful that it's hard for them to have the, the sustainability to play. Um, yeah, even even like when my dad started at everton, duncan was was a top player at the time, and he had his own struggles because he was really tall and again, quite powerful. And it seems like it's hard to be able to sustain it for whatever reason.
0: yeah, I mean, a lot of it comes down to physiology, isn't it? You can't you know you, yeah. there's nothing you can do about that. And yeah. I think the demand the demand on players now is 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 more than ever, isn't it, in terms of the amount yeah. of games they have to play, the turnaround of games. You know, um, you know, we've seen it with the World Cup. You know, the Premier League's barely finished and the World Cup started. You know, you see players picking up little injuries already. Or and I think a lot of that, you, you know, you can't really control. It's just a case of trying to manage it. And I suppose that's where you, where, where your role comes in.
2: Um, yeah, I think I, want- I think that's really difficultly what you're saying about. Um, a lot of it is genetic, so that there are genetic uh, factors in soft tissues that mean you're going to get injuries. And what what you said about not being able to control it psychologically is one of the toughest things. So Yeri, for example, like most players do, but Yeri does absolutely everything you can imagine to prevent getting injured. He spends his, half his life in in ice baths. He he does everything you can imagine, but he can't control whether he gets injured. And psychologically, it's it's a really difficult thing to live with that.
0: Yeah, I can imagine. I think the mental side of it, more than anything, would be almost as tough, if not tougher, than the physical side of it. Trying, trying, trying to get fit, fit to play. During um, your time as well, Danny, I wanted to mention a couple of things. You worked obviously with some Everton, what we'd call in our era, certainly, you know, heroes like Tim Cahill, mikael Arteta, who, who's gone on to be, uh, you know, by all accounts, a very, very top young manager. Um, what was it like working with those guys? I mean, obviously, t- Tim, I would describe. In terms of a resilient person, he's the epitome, isn't he? I mean, he's made himself the best possible player he could be. Maybe not as gifted as maybe a, a Pinar or an Arteta type, but you know, people like that who come to you and, and obviously you've worked with. I mean, you know, they always astound me in terms of his his mental strength and and obviously where he's gone now after football is testament to that, isn't it?
2: Yeah, Tim's special, and when he when he signed for Everton. Uh, Tim had had an ACL, he was at Millwall and his dream was always to play in the Premier League and so we, I took him from medical because of his knee, we had to go and see a knee specialist so we went to see the knee specialist and he said, yeah, I'll get back to you when I've reviewed the scans and everything so we're driving back in the car it was to Belfield at the time and the specialist called and said, yeah, the knee's fine he's passed the medical, no problem Tim was in the car and he burst into tears And it's the only player that I've ever met that it's meant so much to him. And, you know, that moment says everything about him. From from the first moment he played, he's just got absolute passion and commitment to everything he does. And we went pre-season once to Australia and it was like the Tim Cahill show. And we all all said that he's going to be president of a prime minister of Australia or something. Mm -hmm. And he's just infectious. Yeah, and he's got this energy and enthusiasm and and it's carried him so far in life and I admire that a lot and Mikel he I spent a day with him last season at Arsenal and I was so impressed with him he's incredible manager and in, I, I was only there a day but it feels like he's got the full package you know he's a real um, good man manager he's really great with the players he's good with his staff tactically he's brilliant and he's thinking about everything and he's he's worked with some great managers. Obviously, he was a young player with Pep at Barcelona and went through that system. And he was always thinking about how to play the game and, and tactically, even as a young player. But to see him now develop in, into what he, what he has, it, it's brilliant. And yeah, yeah, you kind of feel proud because obviously you, you play a small part in his career. But to see him develop into the man that he is... Um, Yeah, it's great.
0: And that's a real testament to what we were talking about before in terms of giving someone time. Because he's nearly been sacked probably nearly a dozen times, well, half a dozen times, sorry, by the press, by Arsenal Fan TV as well as everybody else. And then look what he's got on to become. Some of us have seen the documentary and he comes across fantastic in that as well in terms of his his ability to build relationships with the players. And the irony is we were talking about how good Carlo and getting someone like him through the club We were linked with Mikel at the time, weren't we? And maybe how things might have been different if if Arteta would have come to Everton, because there was a good chance of that potentially happening as well, wasn't there?
2: Yeah, I think, um, you know, you you talk about giving managers time. I think because Mikel's so brilliant, you're going to give him time, even if uh, results aren't great for a small period. Because he's so brilliant, if you see him work, you're going to give him time because he's such a great manager. But the other thing about what you said, you know, looking at the documentary, it feels like Arsenal, the whole club is aligned. So he's got a great um, connection and relationship with Edu. Edu's got a great connection with the board and even Josh Kroenke has got a great relationship with Mikel. So, you know, a manager is only going to be successful if he's in a club that is well aligned and and supports him in, in that way as well.
0: It's no surprise, no surprise they're doing as well as they are because of that though. Um we talked obviously about obviously meditation, yoga being a lot more prevalent in 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 football now and 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 obviously the you know certainly the the mindfulness side we were talking about as well. Can you tell us about the story of the time when you brought um I know you're very close to Sadhguru, aren't you? Um, who's obviously if people don't know, he is one of the you know biggest spiritual leaders uh, there is, really, isn't there? Um, yeah. I mean, you, you brought him to the club, didn't you, and 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 met the players. Is that right? Yeah.
2: Yeah, he came in twice, actually. He came in um, before we played Liverpool and we beat Liverpool 2-0. And that was the only time we, had, we ever beat Liverpool, basically. And then he came in about a year later uh, before we were playing Tottenham at home. And it was when Tottenham were a, a good team. They had Bale and we beat them 2-0 as well. But the, um, so I saw Sadhguru speak in Nottingham and he was like, he just blew me away Is he's, he's a brilliant speaker, very engaging. And so on the Monday, I thought, right, I need to, I need to meet this guy somehow. So I go in and see David Moyes and I said, look, I've seen this guy He's a really good speaker. I'd like him to come in and speak to the team. What do you think? And he was like, um, yeah, yeah. As long as he's not like the Dalai Lama and I like Sadhu's got this long beard. He's got this like his full Indian dress, and I'm thinking. I said to him, "No, he's not like the Dalai Lama." But I'm thinking he's ten times worse. So uh, Moisey yeah. just kind of said, "Right, yeah, that's fine. You get on with it." And then he just kind of left it to me, and he distanced himself from it a little bit, which was fine. So he came in. It was the day before we played Liverpool. He came to Finch Farm. And I was a bit nervous because, like it was all on me, really. And he was going to speak to the team that night at the hotel, and I thought it could go anyway. Um, but he just came in, and the players loved him straight away. it was It was hilarious. He was out on on the training pitch with his sandals on kicking the ball with Jack Rodwell and a few of the other players. Wow. and he he's got this magnetism, so the players were just drawn to him, and they loved him and then he spoke that night in at the hotel he spoke for about half an hour and i've never seen the players so still and so calm and they they really like felt his presence and this energy in the room and and loved it and then obviously we we win the game the next day after the game in the dressing room they're all singing sad guru and um yeah it was hilarious but a lot a lot of the players, well, not a lot. Some of the players still do uh, the meditation that Sadhguru taught them uh, all those years ago, and, and you know he's still connected to those players.
1: It's, it, it's incredible to, to see. Obviously, obviously, bringing a figure in like that, you can have such a such a big impact. I think if if anyone's got Frank Lampard's number, just give him a little bit of a buzz.
2: You know. <laughs> so
1: got that we, we get him in every single week. If that's uh, you've got hundred percent record so far, we, so we, we'll get him back in. But it, it, it's amazing.
2: Mikel might get him in actually, Arsenal.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Well, well Mikel, I mean, go, going back to Mikel, if we can. I mean, we're all, we were all big fans and we, we've spoken about him. Like Lee said, obviously there was a sort of sliding doors moment, but when Carlo came in, say Mikel was linked, went to Arsenal. Um, he's had obviously numerous numerous times where the press has nearly got him got him the sack. But Arsenal have, have shown uh, a patience and, and, and a stability to to want to keep the, the same manager again, and and we say don't repeat about about identity. We have got this thing about where say I haven't got an, an identity, and Michael Arteta is is certainly finding uh, an identity at Arsenal and, and reaping the rewards.
3: <laughs> yeah, he certainly is. Yeah, they're playing fantastic football. Um, but I, I think going back to to what Dan said earlier, you know, last season the spirit of the Blues, so to speak, and the impact of the fans. I'm not saying that we, we will be where Arsenal are in a season or two or, or we can expect ourselves to be. But I think it's evidence of what unity can do if you do give fans and managers time and clubs time to put foundations in place. And um, I know we're, we're big advocates of the work that Frank Lampard's done and um, not just tactically and with the players and on the pitch. But in terms of reconnecting with the club again, you know, we feel like a football club.
1: Hundred percent. and I think on, on that point that you make, Pete, and, and back, back to you, Danny, was talking about this this identity and what have you. Do you think that since obviously since David Moyes left me we had that longevity of the same manager, you knew how he worked, he obviously had the respect of the players. Um, it was always wasn't it was always plucky little Everton in a way. We were always punching above our weight and you know, we were great to be finishing in European places. Do you think since David Moyes moved on, Everton has still yet to find that identity?
2: Yeah, I think so. And it's difficult. You know, we spoke about Brentford and Brighton earlier, and the expectation at Everton is just so much higher. And when you get the money, um, it just raises expectation even more. And the other thing is that all of the other clubs have got the money now as well. So you kind of expect Everton to be up there with Man United because they've got the money, but the, the competition now is much greater. And yeah, and like you, you're not gonna have an identity if you keep changing sporting directors, you keep changing managers. Um so yeah, and but I, I think, you know, with in, in this age where we've got all these billionaire owners, it, it's hard because they want quick success. And I don't think they're that bothered about Identity or culture, and they probably don't um, realise the importance of it. They just want um, success as quickly as possible. So I think it's a tough challenge to to get that in a lot of Premier League clubs these days.
1: Yeah, the the the, the pressure, the pressure, from people who are putting the money in, um, must be absolutely incredible. And they always want that instant success, and obviously, I'd that's it's not come for a variety of factors now, obviously moving towards towards Bramley Moore, hopefully now we've got a, a more successful future on the horizon, that's for sure. Um but I've I've got I've got i got to ask just just in terms of when you left the club last November, obviously I know you put a a, a post out on socials after a little bit of time think, thinking about obviously things and, and what have you. How much of a wrench was it for you leaving the club at, at that time, a club that you've known for so long that you've been, you know Best part of 20 years, by a little bit of a break in the middle. How how difficult was it for yourself to to, to leave the club?
2: To be honest, it wasn't difficult because, as I I kind of mentioned, um, I felt like ethically I wasn't um, aligned with the management at the time. And, you know, I'd I'd kind of um, stuck with it for a few months and I felt like, it's not good for good for a human if they if they stay in a position where they feel ethically um, not aligned. So, obviously, like in terms of like loving Everton and, and my heart being at Everton, um, it was difficult. But I I kind of felt like <clears throat> it wasn't the Everton that I knew, and it wasn't the Everton I wanted it to be. So it was it wasn't that difficult.
0: I think as as one door closes, another one opens, Danny. And that's then led you to what obviously you've been doing now with 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 embodyism there. I mean, um how, how was that? I mean, as someone who myself who started, I I left uh sort of a corporate environment, if you like, to set up my own business. It's a big leap to do that. And obviously, you know, you, you're going well out of your comfort zone doing it as well. But obviously sometimes being out of your comfort zone is a is a good thing, uh many would say. But how's that journey been since you've left and obviously you've set up your business now and you're working with businesses aren't you as well as as well as yeah. athletes and that as well
2: yeah yeah i think um like it's challengingly you know there's 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 good days and bad days but generally it's been really good because like you say when you're out of your comfort zone i think it's a great thing and i encourage everyone to do it as much as they can um but I, I get a lot of joy and happiness from the work that I'm doing and it's kind of grown quite well. And, yeah, I, I've, I've been fortunate because, you know, I've been lucky to work with a lot of great people over the years and, you know, I've stayed in contact with them and and still work with them. And I think, you know, thinking about missing Everton, I think I probably would have really missed football if it wasn't for the fact that I was still working with a lot of footballers. Um, so I feel like I've still got that connection to football you know when the games are on at the weekend I'll be watching my players play and be really engaged and wanting them to do well so yeah I mean football has been my whole life um, but it's been great to have a new experience and yeah you called me an entrepreneur at the start and a year ago I would never have even connected with that word but I actually think you know, I I work with a lot of entrepreneurs and they've helped me massively to learn about being an entrepreneur. And yeah, I'm I'm really grateful for all of that. Fantastic.
1: Do, do you think, Danny, do you see yourself jumping back into actually working at a club uh, a year? Or do you think now that, that, that that's your time because you want to concentrate on obviously your, your own business and things like that?
2: I would never say never, but I feel like um I, the longer time goes on, the less likely that will be. And I'm I'm more interested now in culture and leadership and, and how teams work. So I'll definitely go back and, and work in football in that capacity, but probably not in the, the similar role to what I did before. And I've had, you know, in the last year, I've had three or four really good offers. Um, and a couple of them, it was, it was difficult to say no, but in the end, I just felt like, you know, what I'm doing means more and, and I'm enjoying it a lot. So, like football is always going to be part of my life. And who, who knows whether I'll work again in a club. But yeah, I'll always have that connection. No, that's
0: great to, to hear that. I, I, sorry, spoke to on,
2: Gemmell, I spoke to Scott Gemmell yesterday. Uh, Scott was a player at Everton when I first went there. And obviously, his dad played with my dad. So we had that connection. But Scott just said that um he's got two boys and he said he's so happy because they love football. And uh, they love football like I do. And it, it's great to hear that because Scott's had his whole life in football and I have as well. And, yeah, we've both still got that connection and love for it.
0: Yeah, I, lo- I love that. I love it. Uh, you mentioned before about obviously businesses. You're working with a lot of businesses, entrepreneurs. Do you find, I mean, a, a big part of what we do with our business as well is trying to work with businesses. We're trying to create a culture. Um. It's a very difficult thing to do and it's not an overnight job certainly it's a period of time that you can create a culture do you find Danny, with the entrepreneurs that you're working with now are they open to obviously you know speaking with the likes of yourselves and what you're trying to bring to businesses and things like that as well are they open to that now more in terms of meditation mindfulness you know being like we said before outside your comfort zone um just around that type of things that you do you are more business owners more open to this now i think in my experience i would say yes but what what about in your experience
2: yeah definitely i mean because it's just like it's like footballers you know they're looking for the competitive edge and business is very competitive so and especially i think since covid in terms of the culture um like a lot of organizations are having to reset and, and having to think about what what is their meaning in life and and what is what is their culture what do they want it to be so i feel like there's a huge um there's a huge dialogue around it at the moment and everyone's open to it and then there's the other side which is the mental health side and i generally think people have got that wrong because they they look at mental health from um a position of oh what do we do when mental health goes wrong and i think it should be more looking at how do we set up cultures to support mental well-being um, and And a lot of companies are trying to do that because it's so competitive, you know, keeping the best staff, attracting staff um so ev- I think everyone's open to trying to get the competitive advantage for sure
0: yeah you used the phrase um I, I heard you say it um in terms of the, some of the work that you do is, and it really stuck with me actually was like helping helping people, helping groups going beyond their habitual patterns. I really like that because obviously we all we can all fall into that, and the companies fall into that.
2: Yeah yeah and I think the key to that is opening up dialogue so having those difficult conversations and I always I like, I was always interested in teams and how teams work when I obviously been in football like some teams are really successful and others less so and I was thinking like why is that and it's when there's an there's a a culture of integrity and honesty and openness and when teams can have those really difficult conversations and and break those habitual patterns that's what leads to creativity and success. And it, it's just the same in football as it is in any organization, obviously on different scales. And in football, it's great because you you see the result at the end of the week, you see the result. Um, so it's it's easy to get the feedback on what's happening in the culture. Um, but yeah, I think it's really interesting. It's
1: certainly, I think obviously that the mindfulness side of things, and, and like you say, you know, people's mental wellbeing it, it, it's so important so after what everyone has been through the last the last couple of years, especially, but I think within sports as we touched on earlier, you know the players players' well-being is is so important and something that we need to all be a lot more mindful of when we're you know when people are sitting there criticizing their player, thinking they're not giving their role. People don't understand obviously how that player is mentally, what's yeah. happening in their life, external yeah. factors, their impact and performance and i think that that's that's something that we all need to be a lot a lot more aware of and certainly a lot more accepting of to make sure that players are comfortable in, in coming out speaking about it and 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 not feeling that they they're, they're going to be um seen as, as anything different for for speaking about the the feelings and the and the mental health
2: yeah i think i think it's difficult because as as we said earlier you thought you kind of think players are superhuman and when when you said what you just said about not recognizing that players are human and have frailties, It made me think about Leon Osman because we, uh, we played against Man City at the Etihad years ago. And Ozzy got a, a stomach bug the night before and he, he didn't have a minute's sleep. He was vomiting all night. He didn't have any food. And most players would not even attempt to play in the game. And However he did it, he played against Man City at the Etihad and he was man of the match and you would never have known what had wow. happened to him the day before. You know, things things happen like that all the time that people just don't know about, and it's hard for people to know about them. But yeah, you know, when he did that, it was just like m- my admiration for him was huge. Incredible.
0: And uh, you know you what, know, no one epitomizes it more recently in terms of someone like an Alex Iwobi, who, who for me comes across as a really genuinely great guy, yeah, I mean, fairly humble guy, fairly, almost quite a shy, shy character, if if you'd probably yeah. say that. You know, and he, he found it difficult when he first came into Everton. First of all, he was questioned, why have we signed him anyway? And then for that price tag, so already he's on a negative. But then obviously he's had different managers to work with. He's been played out of position a lot of the time as well. Everybody knows he should have been played through the middle. That's where his best strengths are. And then on top of that, you know, the fans were all over him, weren't they, in terms of, you know... Imagine playing in front of forty thousand where you give the ball away, and then there's forty thousand. Well, maybe seventy percent of that forty thousand giving groans. But you know what? He's really turned that around, and that and that that's great to see. You know, it's great to see as a player how you know fans can sometimes have their favourites. You know, we've seen that where you know they might get an applause if they try something because they're a fan's favourite, and they give it away. Whereas someone like Awobi was obviously, you know, it, it was it was borderline horrendous at times but then now you know i mean you must see that danny as well i mean for him to turn that round, it's not an easy thing to do with a fan base is it
2: no i think um i've never seen a player turn it around like alex has and yeah. not only in turning the fan base around but turning himself around because when i worked with him he was like he was the most laid-back guy you'll ever meet and he's a lovely lovely boy um, mm. But I felt like he needed to commit himself more to the game, and and however he's done that, I don't know, but he's done it, and yeah, I admire him a lot for having changed that that attitude and perception of himself. It's brilliant.
0: Yeah, fantastic. I love that story. Yeah, I, th- I think I think he,
1: he certainly he's the most recent example of a player who's who's really really turned turned things around. It's great to see, and and I think without yeah, sort of wanting to end on on a sour note. Obviously, the, the performance of Bournemouth our, our last game, and uh, a lot of unsavory scenes to me, we discussed it after the game ourselves, and Alex Abobi was getting the, the brunt of that, which was, which was you know, a, it was a shame shame to see that, because people, again, you know, he spoke so candidly and openly about how the fan support meant so much to him, and, and how he's turned his performances around, and, and he, he needs to feed off that, obviously, Alex Abobi I think, to, to ensure that his performances stay at a certain level, and and he's, he's it's been terrific to see him. You know the, the change has been fantastic, and and we all really enjoy enjoy watching him. But again, got to be mindful. You know we've got to we've got to make sure that we we back our players as best we can, and and sign try sign try pull them through. Um, but Danny, it's it's been it's been a great chat. I could talk all day because I, I want to pick <laughs> things over also all sorts and get even more stories. But it's it's I think it's been a fantastic chatter discussion. Obviously about your, your your time at the club, the work that you do and um, the work that you're going to continue to do and and um, i look forward to catching up obviously in in the future again and, and and listening to more of those uh those lobster green podcasts as well
2: great thanks a lot guys i've really enjoyed it and i can't wait to come to the new stadium when it's when it's open Thanks, Danny, but, mate. Thank you. Yeah, we the,
1: the, it. The jewel it. The jewel in the crown, that's for sure, because it's absolutely flying up around anymore at the moment. The the latest, yeah. latest pitch is a sensation, so we yeah, look forward to, to getting down there. Yeah, yeah, fantastic. But thanks, everyone, for listening. Hope you've enjoyed this episode of the, the Trinity B-side. We'll be back with the usual podcast when the football returns after, after the World Cup. Hope everyone's enjoying that. So we will catch you then.